0: All right. I mentioned uh, we snuck in a Christmas song while, while Bryce was gone. But honestly, um, I'm actually very similar to Bryce. I, I, uh, I've been called a Grinch. Um, and it's not... I don't love hearing Christmas music for three months leading up to Christmas. And it's not because I don't love Christmas. It's because I do love Christmas. And I don't want to hate it by the time we get there. And, um, and so it's actually kind of, kind of weird. I, I wasn't planning on... Um, putting in that, I was just going to do the regular hymn, cast him, um, crown him with many crowns. Um, but while I was looking for music online, I saw that one. And I was like, man, that's perfect, because I actually had talked to Bryce a few weeks ago, and I was like, Bryce, I, I, if you need any Advent sermons, I've, I've got one, I think, that I've been really going with a lot of things I'm learning. Um, and he's like, okay, let me look at the schedule. And he's like, can you do it? on the 31st. I'm like, well, I guess I can like kind of make it a transition maybe from like Christmas to forward. So um, <laughs> that, uh, so there's going to be some Christmas content. And then when I saw the stuff with like the wise men and everything in that song, I was like, man, that's that's really good. And I, I kind of like, I'm not, I'm not a huge hymns guy, but I really like that hymn. And um, so that's where that came from. So keep in mind as I'm, as you're like, uh, there's a lot of Christmas verses in here, but it's past Christmas time. Um, that's, that's where all this is coming from. Um, and as we led up to Christmas, we actually, I, I really appreciated that, that focus on Advent and um, that waiting for the coming. And we, we saw Zechariah and Mary and the birth of Christ announced by the angels to the shepherds. This is the beginning of the Gospels, and we love the Gospels for good reasons. It's the good news, right? Um, actually, Gospel... Uh, comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word. This is probably reviewed review for a lot of you guys, but um, the, the word spell" is an old word, and we have this word gospel we got from that. But it just, its literally, it means good news. And so, um, you know, when these people are talking about good news, when, when, when Gabriel says, I've got good news for you, um, and when we talk about the gospel ourselves, it's good news. Um, and and I, <laughs> it's funny because last week I got real nervous, because uh, I was I was already working on this sermon, and then Bryce said almost word for word from my notes, he said the gospels don't exist in a vacuum, and I was like, oh no, he's going to do it. He's going to do my sermon. I'm already halfway through, so I don't know how to do another one. <laughs> but it's actually perfect. Um, I had a, he covered a lot of points that um, I don't have to cover now. They're not competing sermons. They're going to be complementary. So um, if you. <laughs> If you feel like i am left something out today, just listen to last week's sermon, and then it, it all works out. Um, now, it's safe to say in general, I think, a lot of us prefer the New Testament to the Old Testament. Um, I think we, we feel like it's a little easier to understand. It relates a little more to us. We're a little scared of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a lot of—like when I was a kid, I liked the Old Testament for certain parts of it. I liked the, the stories about David— you know, like, oh, that was cool, man. It's like Return of the King, you know, and Lord of the yeah. Rings stuff. You know, he's, his mighty men battling people. You have Proverbs, which is pretty straightforward, like wisdom for life. I can dig that, I get that. Um, uh, we've got, we get into like the prophets, and I'm like, I don't know, this stuff is kind of weird. There's a lot of metaphors in here I don't understand. There's a lot of talk about exile, and I've never been exiled, so I don't really know what they're talking about here. And we, and uh, uh, we, and don't don't even like, the, the laws, like, forget about it, right? Leviticus. I would read that stuff. What, i what, what's going on here? This has nothing to do with me. And don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. What? That's a law. That's a Levitical law. Like, what does that even mean? I have no idea. I still have no idea what that means, why it's important. But it was, okay? Um, the Old Testament's hard to understand, and we don't live in those times, right? But it's actually, we don't live in, we kind of fool ourselves. We don't live in the same times as the gospel writers either. We don't live... And even leading up to, when we get into the Gospels, we're still up until, I mean, there's different places you could argue where the New Covenant begins, but we're still Old Testament. Um, And so those people are still, a lot has happened. The the Old Testament covers a lot of ground, uh, and a lot has happened, but those people are still Jewish people, right? The New Testament is still written by Jewish people. And so we kind of... We kind of approach the Gospels, like Bryce said, as they exist in a vacuum when they don't. And to really understand the New Testament and to really understand the Christmas message, I think we really have to go back to the Old Testament. And that's what I think Advent is so great for, is we can reflect on the Old Testament um, and we can lead up to, uh, Emily and I, we we always get these, uh, every year we find like a Christmas devotional book or something. I've been looking for one that goes through the Old Testament. I can't find one. Um, and we keep doing these New Testament verses all through Advent, but I'm like, listen, Advent announces the coming of the Messiah, but these Jewish people, they don't know the New Testament yet. And so to get what it meant to them, we have to go back. So I'm going to, the Bible doesn't start at Matthew 1.1, so I'm going to, there's a lot here. I'm going to try to briefly cover some covenants, Old Testament covenants that were foundational to the identity of the Jewish people. And, And these are, these are not just, you know, we talk about covenants, like, oh, that's for, like, the Bible geeks like me and Brian to geek out at Bible college and seminary. They're for us because we need to know what laid the foundation for Jesus, what laid the foundation uh, for God's people. <sighs> Thankfully, Bry, Bryce already went through Genesis 1 through 3, so I don't have to cover the creation in the fall. He did that last week. Um, the basic, um, basic thing we got there, right, is um, God wants relationship with humanity? Our sin breaks it. God wants us to be sub rulers under Him, but sin's messed that up. So we've got the problem there, and that's where we start with the Abrahamic covenant. God calls out Abraham and establishes the, this covenant, which is a promise with him. Uh, we see the call in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And I've got a lot of verses today, and I did not, uh, I, I set them all up, printed out on my stuff. So that way we wouldn't have to spend a lot of time flipping. So if you're a Bible flipper and you like to follow in your own Bible, I'm sorry. But I've got to get through some Old Testament here. So I'm not going to be pausing a lot before these unless I lose myself in the outline, which definitely will happen today sometime. But for now, we're going to start right into Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So that's kind of the Abrahamic call. Um, there's parts of the covenant. When when the covenant's really established in Genesis 15, we won't read through that just for time's sake, but there's a covenant ceremony where God passes between these two animals, and he does it by himself. And what that means back then is that usually two, two parties in a covenant would pass through these, um, I guess, Pieces of animals or something, and that would establish a covenant together. God puts Abraham to sleep, and Abraham in his in his vision sees God pass through it alone. And what that means is that Abraham, God's saying, this is all me, all right. Um, and and he sees God appears as a flaming torch and smoking pot. And I had to mention that because it's a weird thing. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, the Old types are so weird, but it's going to come back, okay. And this is an everlasting covenant. Uh, God promises a people through Abraham in, uh, and and Really, a son, which, um, you know, if you know that story, is kind of hard to believe for him and his wife. But um, he promises a people through the air. He promises a land. Um, and he promises the whole world's going to be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. Uh, we see how that's, that's already addressed in the poems from Genesis 3, right? Um, it's not just Abraham that's cut off from God. It's the whole world. And we need an heir. Or, or, sorry, we need... a. Uh, God promised to to um, Eve that heir that would fix those problems, and we're seeing that starting to happen. It's an everlasting covenant, but Abraham doesn't live to live to see it, and so you gotta wonder if you're the Jews you're reading this, you're like, oh, d- this didn't happen for Abraham. He it, it like a lot of it did, but that it was not totally fully realized, and you wonder. Is God's promises, are they trustworthy? Well, we see the Mosaic Covenant. When Genesis tracks with Abraham's family come to Jacob, God renames Israel. Uh, Israel's family moves to Egypt, becomes great, but they become enslaved. And they're there in slavery, and, and you think, isn't, isn't this God's people? Doesn't he see their oppression? Doesn't he hear their cries for rescue? And then when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and sees the burning bush, God says, I have heard them, and you're going to take them out you're going to take them out from Egypt's oppression. So we got the plagues, Exodus, Moses leads them out, climbs Mount Sinai again. God establishes the Mosaic Covenant. This is where all those weird laws come from, right? But therefore, the founding of the identity of the nation of Israel, these weird laws are part of Israel's, um, let me just read Exodus 19, four through six. Moses went up the mountain to God and the Lord called from him to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob, and explained to the Israelites, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Now, if the whole nation, you know, you know we know enough. I think most of us do that. There were like kind of the, the people, and then there's like the Levites and the priesthood that did all this stuff. But God calls this nation, the whole kingdom, his priests. And so if they're the priests, who are the people supposed to worship God? We see um, in later verses that God means for the whole world to see his glory through this nation of Israel. They're supposed to bring God's message and his glory to the whole world. Moses builds a tabernacle. This is also called the tent of meeting, although there's kind of this transitional period where there's like an original tent of meeting, and then there's the tabernacle tent of meeting, which is the Holy of Holies and all this stuff. But basically, God's tent is within the Israelites' camp, and he moves in in Exodus 40. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night. What does a a smoking pot and a torch make? It makes a cloud of smoke and a fire, right? There was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all their stages of journey. This is a visible glory of Yahweh. It's referred to as the Shekinah. Uh, It's this localized presence, even though God is all-present. There's something we see throughout the Old Testament of this Shekinah where you see something create like something really lit up and scary, and that's God, right? Um, <laughs> and and, the, and this imagery is calling back to the Abrahamic covenant. He's reminding them, and it's that smoking pot and flaming torch. He, the the people follow that column of fire and that column that cloud of smoke all throughout the wilderness, and God is present with and ruling his people even in the wilderness wandering. And then before crossing Jordan, Moses gathers the people and reminds them of the covenant before he kind of uh, is taken away. Deuteronomy 18, um, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. Um, now, we're going to skip a lot of stuff and go to the Davidic covenant, which the, basically Israel conquers Canaan, kind of. Struggles with invaders and challenges through the land, but eventually God calls the prophet Samuel to anoint David as a king. Now, anointing, uh, a lot of us know this already. Anointing is kind of like a smearing with oil. We see this all the time when kings are anointed. God's saying, like, hey, you're going to be my king. When priests are anointed, it's like this ceremony to show God, God's empowering and choosing of that priest. There's even some prophets, uh, sorry, some references to certain prophets being anointed, although we don't always see that in the Old Testament. Um, But that's uh, kind of the basic three things in the Old Testament that really the ceremony um, of anointing happens is a king is chosen, a priest is chosen, sometimes a prophet is chosen. David, empowered by God, is a great warrior. He delivers Israel from Philistine oppression and harassment, and Israel finally has peace. David wants to build a temple, but God says there's uh, too much blood on your hands. Um, Even though it was David's job to, to... Go to war. It wasn't his job to build the temple. But God said, David is going to have a son, and his son's going to build the temple. And then he makes some interesting references um, and establishes the Davidic covenant in 2nd Samuel 7. He says, When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. When he, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure for, before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So uh, this is kind of kind of cool. God has said, okay, you, you want to build for house to me, but then there's kind of this play on words where it says God says, I'm going to build a house for you. And he's establishing this covenant with David that he's going to have an heir that's going to, um, to last. And the Davidic line will not be um, removed, as Saul's line was. And then Solomon is David's son. He builds the temple. And this happens, 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11 when the priests come out of the holy place, the cloud fills the Lord's temple, and because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Does that sound familiar? God moves into the temple, and, we, and everybody sees it. Everybody sees the Shekinah enters the temple, and imagine the praising there. And then last time I preached, we talked about Solomon's dedication to the temple and where he said that kings of other nations will come to pay tribute and worship here. And it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Israel's meant to mediate God's rule and presence to the other nations. Just as we've seen throughout Genesis, now we see it in 1 Kings. But we've got some problems. For a while, it looks pretty good. Uh, Solomon has a pretty good reign. Uh, the broken world maybe will be fixed. I don't know. But we see pe- people's sin messes this up. Jealousy and ambition uh, cause the kingdom to split in two. God's people are supposed to be showing the light of God's hope to the world. They have problems of their own with injustice, with oppression. Um, even God's own people are broken and still need fixing. And then we start to get in the more complicated phase of Israel's history. Um, I have trouble keeping track of the, when the kingdom splits, you've got the northern and the southern kingdoms, and there's all these kings, and I cannot remember them. I, cannot, I get so confused when I read, like, who's king now? I don't know. And then sometimes have diff- like two different books refer to the same king by like two different names. You're like, oh, it's so confusing. So, (laughs) you still have all these changing dates and players, but the basic cycle kind of happens, as it always does, is God's people fails to keep up their end of things. So God's people is failing to keep up their end of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, As punishment, they get sacked by foreign invaders, and they get scattered in exile. Um, Here's where I, I, uh, remember I said the prophets get kind of weird, but... um, I've really been starting to love the prophets, and we're going to kind of buckle up and get into some prophets here. The Old Testament prophets, but but first, just take a second, and, and we, we've gone through like many, many years of history just in a blink here, and hopefully faster than I'm afraid that I've taken covering it, but um, <laughs> these people have all these promises from God, and they keep seeing other nations come in and oppress them. And we're going to, keep, so the prophets, and it's because of their own sin most of the time. It's not like they can like blame it on anybody else. They've only themselves to blame, except for the. there were righteous people in Israel. God also talks about the remnant of Israel, and it's the righteous remnant, the people in Israel whom he, say, he keeps, the people in Israel who stays faithful to him. Um, so before we get into Isaiah, let me get a drink of water here. All right. Okay, like I said, the Old Testament prophets, they give us a look at Israel's sins and what God thinks of them. Isaiah, and and, um, you'll see, if you look at the references below, uh, whenever this comes up, I'm going to be skipping verses because uh, for one thing, we don't have a lot of time. For another thing, a lot of the prophets are very poetic and and Hebrew poetry relies a lot on repetition and parallelism. So I kind of try to um, skip some of the verses where he says the same thing over again. But it was really hard to do that, <laughs> okay? Uh, Isaiah 1, we're going to start in verse 2. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey, its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand, O sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Your land is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Foreigners, devour your fields before your very eyes, a desolation demolished by foreigners. Watch yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Isaiah 58, we see, isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke. Is is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? These are sins that God is... Pointing out through the prophet Isaiah to his people, these are the charges he brings against them because these aren't things they that like. Oh, well, how did we know that? Read when you read the the Levitical laws and Deuteronomy and Numbers and all that. The Old Testament law is based off of taking care of each other. There their uh, laws in there specifically made within the certain kind of economy that they had to take care ter- because the to take care of poor people, to take care of people who couldn't care for themselves. There are safety nets and, and all this stuff. And, and, and God is telling Israel, you have did away with all those and you've turned my government into something that oppresses people. And that's why, that's why you're in exile. God's kingdom was meant for justice. Um, and, they, and not only those laws, they broke the, the most important one. You have no other gods before me. In Ezekiel 8 uh, God said to His prophet, Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they're doing here? More detestable things. Um, and there's this, I, I had to take it out, but there's really this great picture where God shows an Ezekiel in a vision. He like digs a hole through the temple wall and Ezekiel crawls in and he sees all this idolatry going on in God's house. And God says in Ezekiel 8, do you see these detestable things Israel's committing that I must depart from my sanctuary? God can't even live in his own house anymore. And in Ezekiel nine through eleven, Yahweh shows Ezekiel a vision of his shekinah leaving the temple, and God promises judgment by the sword for um, by the sword of Israel's enemies. So even though they are the offspring of their father Abraham, Israel has failed to bust the nations. They failed to be righteous. They failed to retain the land predicted in the Abrahamic covenant. They failed to keep the law of the Mosaic covenant. And though Solomon built the temple and saw a time of great peace and wealth for Israel. His enduring lineage, promised through the Davidic covenant, seems doomed. And Ezekiel falls on his face, and he cries out, Lord God, will you bring an end to the remnant of Israel? All of these promises of God, they don't seem to be working out. And Ezekiel is like, are you going to just wipe us off? Like, what is even the point here? But God says that help is coming, and Ezekiel 11 Therefore say, this is what the Lord Yahweh says. Though I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they arrive there, they will remove all its detestable things and practices from it, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone and their bodies, and give them a heart of flesh, so that they may follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. And this is almost word for word. Jeremiah has a similar prophecy, and he talks about the new covenant. So all these old covenants that aren't being fulfilled, they're going to be fulfilled, and there's going to be a new one uh, promised in, Jer- uh, in Jeremiah here in Ezekiel and um, other places that we don't have time to read right now. Okay, so here's the part I really... Isaiah, man, I printed out some passages and I made sure I printed them on this piece of paper because if I just open my Bible to Isaiah, i just keep reading the whole time. Um, So um, I can't, I can't do that. I'm limited to what I see right here. And so there's going to be skipped verses and there's a lot, but it's not as much as it would have been if I had opened just, man, Isaiah, I love it. Yeah. All right. Uh, and I'll, I cut out all the conversation pieces I had. I'm sorry, because I just wanted to read this. All right. All right. Isaiah 9, right? No, 59. I kind of would have been a little out of order, but thematically it works. Trust me. Indeed, Yahweh's hand is not too short to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God, and your sins have made him hide his face from you so he doesn't listen. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongues mutter injustice. They have not known the path of peace. There is no justice in their ways. They have made their rods crooked. No one who walks in them will know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness doesn't reach us. We hope for light, but there's darkness. For brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. Transgression, deception against the Lord. Turning away from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and uttering lying lying words from the heart. Some of those are my sins. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far off. Truth is missing. And whoever turns from evil is plundered. You feel that heaviness, right? But the Lord saw there was no justice, and he was offended. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. Boy, that sounds familiar. Paul says some stuff about that. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So he will repay according to their deeds. Fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes. They will fear the name of Yahweh in the west and his glory in the east. For you will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord where the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob. Who turn from transgression? Isaiah nine: The people who walk in, in darkness have seen a great light. A great light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and creates its joy. The people have rejoiced before you; they rejoice as harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh hosts will accomplish this. We see now uh, God through the prophet is referring back to that David had come. It says, it's not over. I'm sending somebody, the son of David. Somebody will reign on that throne. Um, and and this is a messi- we call this a messianic prophecy, and we talk about this idea of the Messiah. This is a Hebrew word, and it literally means anointed one. Remember, we talked about the people who were anointed. They were kings, prophets, sometimes priests. And so we see here the coming new Davidic heir, the Messiah, and this is a recurring theme throughout the, the prophets. This anointed one who's a future Davidic king who will be the ultimate ruler, freeing Israel from oppression, righting the wrongs, bringing justice and peace to the broken world under his kingdom. Again, in Isaiah 11, we see more about this. The shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. it's talking about the Davidic heir, the Messiah. A branch from his roots will be, bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will judge the poor righteously, execute justice for the oppressed of the land. These are all things that Isaiah was saying. This is what you did wrong. David there, the Messiah will fix this. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people as the nations will seek him, it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. The nations will seek him, the resting place will be glorious. More about that nation seeking him in Isaiah 60. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your radiance. Caravans of camels will cover your land. They will carry gold and frankincense. Proclaim the praises of the Lord. I will glorify my beautiful house. Violence will never be heard of again in your land. Devastation and destruction will be gone from your borders. You will name your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no longer be your light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not shine on you, but Yahweh will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your splendor. The sun will no longer set. Your moon will not fade, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. The days of your star will be oval, over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the branch I planted, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. One more, one more uh, from Isaiah, if you bear with me. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festival oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins. They'll restore the former devastations. They'll renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You'll eat the wealth of nations. That's a great line. You eat the wealth. Some say you'll. It's almost like you're you're feasting on all the the wealth that the other nations are bringing in. You'll boast in their riches because your shame was double and they cried out, disgrace is their portion. Therefore, they they will possess double in their land and eternal joy will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice and I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. This is that new covenant, the everlasting covenant brought on by the Messiah, the Davidic heir. Ezekiel 34 is another uh, very, very quick. I just have a couple verses from them. Pro- God prophesies against the shepherds of Israel, uh, these, this metaphor to talk about the leaders of Israel, spiritually and um, politically, I believe. And God promises the good shepherd, his servant David. I will point over them a single shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. Obviously, the David that they knew is gone. This is a future fulfillment of that Davidic heir. He will tend them himself and be with their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God. My servant David will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Now, later in, in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel sees this. Rem, remember, God's presence has been driven out of the temple by their idolatry. But in 43, Ezekiel sees a, a future vision of God's promise, the future return of Shekinah to the new temple. Um, I'm not going to read it because um, I've already read so much. We see glimpses of hope in this darkness throughout all this, this, uh, all this sorrow um, and in their exile. Daniel, another thing, oh man, I wish I had time sometime read Daniel 9. If you want to read, it's such an amazing thing. Daniel is looking at prophecies from, I think, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I'm not quite sure. But he's seeing prophecies in like the timeline God's laid out for certain things to happen and for Israel to be restored. And Daniel sees that coming and he says, I need to pray for this to happen. And Daniel prays. Daniel's a righteous guy, but he still confesses the guilt of Israel. He has, co- he has collective guilt, confession of national sin, pleading for national salvation. And that's something we really need to read Daniel 9 sometime and think about that. We don't do well with things that we think we, didn't, we shouldn't be responsible for. We don't do well with collective guilt. We think, I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I feel bad about these bad things that happened? But... But this is something very real to the Israelites. Their whole identity is wrapped up in this nation, the people of Israel. And if, and if the people as a whole have sinned, Daniel says, i got to pray to God and intercede because I'm part of that people. Even if Daniel wasn't responsible for it, he was still suffering the consequences. He was still part of that. He identified with that. Yeah. And he confessed it and prayed for rescue from God. And God answers, God answers, like I said, I lost it. He answers with messianic prophecy, Um, uh, promises of of the new Davidic heir. Um, I'm still trying to find where I was. I got everything highlighted in my outline, so it doesn't matter what I highlighted, you know what I mean? Um, Okay, my servant David will be prince among me. Okay, we got that. Okay, here we are, yeah. God answers Daniel with promises about Messiah. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are involved in the rebuilding of the temple, even though they're still under uh, oppressive rule. The the kings and whoever they were again, I get confused here. They let these people go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. Um, so we see these glimpses of hope. God's moving. It's kind of taken a while, but things are happening. Zerubbabel's temple, uh, often called the Second Temple. Um, they build it, and they and there's this big party. There's a big praise party, worship party, because we see God starting to um, move here, and we see the temple built. And there's this loud song of praise, but mixed in it with was the sound of weeping, because the people who who were still alive that saw the first temple said it doesn't even come close. And we never seen this passage, the Shekinah moving back in. People again slide into sin. Malachi is the final recorded prophecy for 400 years in terms of our canon. I don't have time to read Malachi 3.16-4.6. Uh, through The end of Malachi has some great, great warnings and also promises about the Messiah. Read it sometime. But that is what sets us up for Christmas. All right, that's That's Advent. Advent means arrival or coming, as I said already. Despite high points in the history, the covenant promises remain unfulfilled. Israel's national identity is based on their status as God's covenant kingdom of priests. Instead, by the time we get to the Gospels, they've been passed back and forth to various countries like poker chips in a game. They're spoils of war. They're just these objects. They're under the Roman subjugation. By the time we get to the Gospels, the Romans are in charge. The righteous remnant of Israel have been hoping and waiting and groaning for the restoration and deliverance by Messiah and the fulfillment of all covenant promises, returning the nation to independence, righteousness, and glory, bringing an end to oppression by outside forces, as well as all forms of internal systemic oppression and poverty. So these are both societal sins and, and personal individual sins that we're dealing with here that have given them problems that the reason they're... Under foreign rule. I feel like I skipped something in Isaiah, but that's just because I wanted to read all of it, so I'm just going to keep going, right? But the reason I read all that is I want us to feel that that's, the, the Old Testament prophets are so much filled with so much emotion, not just you've got the people crying out because they're under oppression and the we just don't, we don't understand that, right? we got to have the prophets to get that for us. We feel the people crying out. We feel God crying out. There's so much emotion on the people. There's emotion on God because he's been, he's been um, rebelled against by the people, his, his beloved son. And the prophets talk about Israel being his son. They talk about Israel being his wife. And they talk about the son rebelling and, and the wife committing adultery against him. Do you feel that sense that God has, if you read these prophets, where he's been betrayed? And it's not that he's just mad for nothing. He's mad and he's, he's hurt. He, we put God in a box sometimes thinking he can only feel one thing at once. He feels everything. So I want us to imagine that sorrow and longing that these people for 400 years and longer have been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, and they don't see it. Even for those who kept their hope, they're clinging to faith through the pain. And that's what Advent's for, right? That's what, when we study Advent, we're leading up to Christmas, we should be remembering that pain and that sorrow. And that sense almost, not of hopelessness, but having hope through that pain. We see, we don't see God working, but we know he said he's coming. And so we're waiting for it. We're putting our hope in that. That's Advent. And this is the context in which Jesus was born and in which the Gospels begin. Almost out of nowhere, right? Because remember, between Malachi and now, 400 years, there's a lot to happen between them. There's the Maccabean Revolt. There's some more glimpses of God working, but it's, in terms of what we have preserved in our canon, there's, not, there's nothing there that we really can point to for a real like, solid thing like, Holding on to that. We have to hold on to those Old Testament um, prophets and their promises. And Gabriel comes to Zechariah, carries <laughs> I'm not surprised that Zechariah was surprised, right? Because nothing's been happening. <laughs> um, he comes in, and Gabriel appears, says, "Your son's going to be the prophet who will prepare Israel for the Messiah." In Luke 1.19, after Zechariah doubts, Gabriel tells him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. That good news. That's the gospel, okay? The gospel Messiah is here. When Gabriel visits Mary, he tells her what? You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant through Messiah. This context brings more weight and meaning to Mary's song of praise. We, one of our sermons covered this. i wanted going to read it real quick. Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his slave. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me. And his name is Holy. His mercy is from generation to generation to those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. He's scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercies, just as he spoke to our ab- ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants of forever. Mary's got that weight, of the unfulfilled Abrahamic covenant. She's got that weight of the unfulfilled Davidic covenant, and when Gabriel says, Messiah is going to come through you, he's going to be your son, it's not just a little baby in a manger. It's the king that's coming. That's why she's so excited. God my Savior, for her, we got a lot of theological loaded, theologically loaded words. Um, we, we know about a lot of stuff that they didn't know, or that, that was murky for them, even if there were hints of it. When Mary says, God, my Savior, she says, God, the one who will rescue me from the hands of Rome. That's what she's talking about. That's what they're excited about when the Messiah comes. This is physical deliverance from political enemies. This is satisfying the hungry, which can be figurative, the hungry for righteousness and literal, the hungry who are starving because economic oppression is happening. When Zacharias praises God and prophesies when his mouth is open. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's visited and provided redemption for his people, for his people Israel. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies, from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, a covenant, Davidic covenant. This is God rescuing them. This is physical salvation rescued from oppressions. This is forgiveness of collective national sin. This is the good news. This is the good news when Gabriel announces to the shepherds in Luke 10, don't be afraid. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. The good news is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And if we have in mind... Uh, also, um, when it says glory to God, the, the host of angels, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, good will to men, we think of like a singing boys' choir. It doesn't even say they're singing. Host is a military term. We see this throughout, uh, we see this title of God, Yahweh of hosts. Um, host is this military term. It's not a little boys' choir. It's shouts of a great and powerful army. Because the Davidic, Heir has the armies of heavens behind him ready to conquer. The good news is the Messiah who is king over a kingdom free from personal sins and social injustices, kingdom of shalom. Yeah. And if we have in mind these Davidic and Abrahamic covenants, we see them both in the Magi coming from the east. That's one of the big reasons I chose that song. It talks about um, the Magi, which we kind of didn't get to in a lot of our Advent sermons because it happens after the birth, and you know, we're past Christmas now, so we stop that. But the nations bring their wealth as tribute to the Messiah, who will be king not only of Israel but of the whole world. We see that fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant right there—a taste of it, right? It's not the whole whole world doing it yet, but we see that that picture of it. Um, I wasn't going to do this, but by the way, real quick, uh, there are some. We kind of wonder, like, why? Why did they know? Why did they know to look? Why were they looking for the Messiah? They were from like Babylon or something. Well, remember the Jews were exiled into Babylon. Daniel is set up as the chief of the Magi. And so there are many who believe, and I I think this is very likely, that under Daniel's influence of schooling the rest of the Magi below him, they were taught to look for this Messiah that's going to come and to worship him. All right, so we've got through Christmas where Jesus is still a baby. um, uh, Sorry, Joseph and, and Mary bring him to the temple. And we see these two people, Simeon and Anna, and I want to read what they said real quick, because it again illustrates this 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 longing that they had, and the way they see these promises fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, excuse me. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. His man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. You you see that he's he's heavy with his oppression, he's looking for Israel to be saved. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. When his parents brought in Jesus to perform for him the customary of the law, Simeon took up him in his arms, praised God and says, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Skip some stuff. There's the prophetess Anna. She did not leave the temple complex serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. What's she fasting and praying for? For the Messiah, for Israel to be saved. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about all of Him who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna were waiting for Messiah to deliver Israel. And if our Advent calendars and devotional books, our sermons, don't start further back than like the first chapters of Matthew and Luke, we don't even start in Matthew 1, we start in Luke 2, right? right. Um, we've missed a lot of stuff. We've missed pain. We've missed this pathos. We've missed longing, oppression, heaviness in their souls. We miss the full weight and power of these passages. If our Bible starts with Matthew 1, 1, we skip past the genealogy altogether. We wonder why Matthew even bothered. But if we carry with us this Old Testament, we know it, and we internalize that, that sorrow and mourning and hope for Messiah's advent. We see the bold statement, Matthew, he's dropping a bomb here with Matthew 1.1. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, he's slapping down Abrahamic and Davidic promises. He said, this is Jesus. He's fulfilling it all. Again, also Christ, that word Christ, we kind of think of it as his name. I know Bryce says this all the time, but it's, it's worth repeating. Christ is the Greek word that replaces the Hebrew word Messiah. So whenever you read Jesus Christ, you read Jesus Messiah, which means Jesus anointed one, which means Jesus king. And so here's where I have to transition the sermon out of Advent and Christmas, right? Because <laughs> I told Bryce, I can do that. I can figure it out. Even past Advent and Christmas, the Old Testament informs the New Testament. We need to know it. Don't fool ourselves. The New Testament context is is just as Jewish as the Old Testament. Okay, it's just as confusing, and we need to know the Old Testament to know the New Testament. Uh, some sources say within the New Testament there are over a thousand allusions to Old Testament passages. Not just quotes. See, when we see the quotes, we're like, "Oh, I can look that up and figure out." No, we're mi- if we don't know the Old Testament, we're missing out pictures that all these New Testament people are, are, are placing in there, that most of their readers would get, and we don't get it. Studying the Old Testament brings fuller meaning to the New Testament. And it's not always easy. Did I skip? Okay, I haven't skipped it. Have I? Oh, no, I haven't skipped it. Don't worry. All right. I'm sorry, there's more. Uh, we just got out of the Old Testament, people. we got to get into some New Testament stuff. Um, Jesus is warmed. Okay, so this is where it kind of gets tricky because we think, okay, I, I've made it sound like if we just read the Old Testament, we'll understand everything, but that's not true. It's confusing. We have to study. We have to meditate on it, and we have to kind of think in different ways. Um, when Joseph's warned of Herod, the family flees to Egypt. Matthew says he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Hosea 11, which I didn't read. I had to cut that one. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this one's a stumper, and not just for, I mean, like, I read so many different articles on Hosea 11.1, so, like, it's not even something that's confusing to regular people, it's confusing to smart people, too. Um, But if you read the Old Testament, you read Hosea 11, you're like, what is Matthew saying? Because Hosea 11 is not a messianic prophecy. Hosea 11 doesn't say anything about Messiah. And not only that, he does, it's a context of, of punishment. It's a context of Israel has rebelled against God. Israel, his, his son, as I mentioned before, um, it's a backslidden Israel as his son. God is saying, even though I rescued my son Israel from Egypt, um, so God's saying, like I did something good for Israel, my son, calling out of Egypt. That's the part that that Matthew quotes, and then he leaves out this part, but the people would have known this part. Uh, my son forsook me for his idols. Because of his failure, I'm going to punish him. And In that passage, God says, my people are bent on turning from me. So that can't be about Jesus, right? So how is that fulfillment of prophecy? So there's plenty of predictive messianic prophecies that are kind of like, okay, he said this is going to happen, this is going to be Messiah. We see Jesus, oh, this happened, it's Messiah. All right? But that's not how fulfillment always works for these people. Um, Matthew is not here citing a proof text that would like convince an unbeliever. See here, this is, means Jesus is Messiah. The fulfillment, fulfillment Matthew sees is not about the answer to a real, riddle or like a mathematical formula. Israel is my son does not like one plus plus equals two equals Messiah. All right? That's not what he's saying. He knows what the original meaning is. He's not saying that's not true, but he's painting a picture. Matthew's a storyteller. And by referring to a verse about failed Israel, Israel is my son taken out of Egypt and say, Jesus went into Egypt. Jesus is my son. Matthew's saying, he's connecting Jesus and the failed Israel and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything that Israel got wrong, Jesus stands in their place. Jesus is the new Israel he keeps all the covenant. And he paints this picture. I know that that's that was like a new idea for me. It took me a while to chew on that one, all right? Cuz I don't I like things being very simple. I like the one that says like out of Bethlehem the Messiah's going to come and we see Jesus born in Bethlehem. This part it's kind of like ah, oh, it seems like Matthew's kind of playing fast and loose. Um but we see this this picture of Jesus being the new Israel that keeps the covenant on the nation's behalf. Um, all throughout the Gospels. And in Matthew, I'm going to read a few examples. If you think about it, it, that is really what he's doing. As Israel, like right after these, we skip to like, very soon in Matthew, we skip to Jesus wandering in the wilderness and and fasting, and then, you know, the fight with the devil and stuff. And this picture emerges of Israel wanted for 40 years in the wilderness, full of sin and rebellion. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, was tempted and emerged sinless, completely submitted to the Father. Chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Matthew tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain. If we read Luke's account, he says he stands on a level place. But a sermon on a plateau doesn't really have the same ring to it, right? Um, but, but, like, what's going on here? Some people try to say, well, a flat place can be on top of a mountain, right? That's true. Uh, I think that kind of misses the point of what Matthew's doing. He's trying to show us, just as Moses climbed Mount Sinai, And return to Israel with the law. Jesus climbs this figurative mountain. He's the new Moses. Deuteronomy 8, that's why I read Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet that will come. He's he's saying Jesus is the new Moses. He's Deuteronomy 18's prophet who's to come, who climbs the mountain, delivers the ethic for the new kingdom living. Um, The Beatitudes, are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you think when Jesus looked out, at the crowd and said, happy are the poor. Which, which again, differences between Matthew and Luke. Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke just says, happy to the poor and woe to the rich. Well, we don't like that one, right? Because <laughs> some of us are kind of rich and we don't like that. Jesus looking out at the crowd. Don't you think he saw poor people there? Don't you think when he, said, when he looks out and says, happy for those Happy are those who hunger for righteousness. He saw folks in the crowd longing deeply for justice. Weren't there among those listeners a righteous remnant mourning the fallen state of Israel? As we read the Beatitudes, don't we hear the prophets? Jesus is saying, he's not saying I want you to be poor necessarily, although being poor in spirit and identifying with that is a good thing to do. He doesn't, say, I want you to mourn your whole life, although mourning your sin is good to do. He, he may be saying that too, but I think what he's saying there is, he's looking out and he's saying, all of you poor, hungry, weary Israel waiting for your king, rejoice. I'm here. The Beatitudes are the good news of Messiah. And you are forsaken by corrupted kingdoms, but the new kingdom is for you. When John says the world became flesh and took up residence among us, that word is, pitch his tent, that word is tabernacled, and we observed his glory. We see John's talking about Jesus being the Shekinah that filled the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. God has remembered his promises, the covenants he made to Israel. They're fulfilled in Jesus, the new Israel, the new Moses, the new David. So, calling back to one of Brian's sermons, read, read your freaking Bible. This is my point here, read your freaking Old Testament, right? <laughs> If we see this and we, we know this story, we put ourselves into the story, man, we feel this. And, and not just for Avid, not just for this. Uh, uh, if we know an Old Testament and read the New Testament with this Old Testament mind, we will see and proclaim and live a fuller gospel. Now, if I've put you to sleep, I know it's been a long I'm sorry, this is a long ride. Um, if you're asleep, please hear me right now. I'm not saying. You notice I haven't said much about the spiritual side of salvation, personal atonement, resurrection, spiritual salvation. I'm not taking those out, right? Like I said, Bryce talked about those last week. There are, those things have been said. They need to be said. Uh, there's only so much time I have. If I was in another church, there are churches that, that don't talk about those things enough. And if I was in one of those churches, I'd probably hit those way harder. But I know we're good with that. I think that what we need to remember more Um, when we see these promises fulfilled, or the parts of the gospel that we don't say enough part about, is that the gospel is earthy and real. It has physical element to it that's often neglected. The good news, as we've seen from all these people leading up and saying, this is good news, Messiah is here. We've seen what Messiah was supposed to do. The good news is Israel's king has come to right the wrongs that our sin has done to ourselves and to the world. God is with us, and he's going to fix us, not just our personal sins, but eventually the broken world systems, corrupt governments, societal failures. The government will be on his shoulder. We've read that already twice. The government. His name, as the the Christmas song says, in his name all oppressions shall cease. This is the good news that Gabriel proclaimed that Mary sang of, Zechariah prophesied of, Simeon and Anna were waiting for, that Jesus preached, the kingdom of God that Paul proclaimed until he died. The Old Testament saints were kind of like, oh, silly Old Testament saints. Listen, they're looking for promises that God made. They weren't wrong. They were wrong about the timing a little bit, okay? And it kind of does feel like God pulled a fast one on them to me, you know, sometimes. <laughs> he comes back, and he does this important work that, again, I, I can't even say enough, but I feel like I have to skip really important stuff about salvation and resurrection. Um, but Jesus comes and does that, and then he leaves again. And so these, they weren't aware of the whole story. And, and to be fair, we wouldn't have been either. There's hints of it, but there's no smoking gun, right? But then in Acts, when Jesus has already resurrected and the apostles are like, okay, is it now? Are you going to restore the fortunes of Israel now? He doesn't say you missed it. You missed, you missed the point. He doesn't say that. He says it's not for you to know the timing. And then he leaves, right? <laughs> so they're back to the, there's renewed hope. But there's also like a sense of like, okay, we're waiting again, right? Um, The kingdom gospel, salvation is spiritual now and physical future. The king is coming back. So we have that fuller gospel, and people today are hungry for the kingdom of righteousness. We're looking to corrupt politicians and systems to fix things. All right, People, people are hungry for that. They see the wrongs being done. Invite your friends, to bow to King Jesus. Tell your friends the gospel of Messiah who is not only savior of your soul, but is savior of a future kingdom who's going to deliver all those oppressed who bow the knee to him. He will return to reign with peace and justice on earth. He will turn the reign with shalom. Uh, some theologians talk about this sense of already slash not yet. I see this in other aspects of Christian theology, uh, like our status as adoption and sanctification. So I see... It makes a lot of sense to me that this will also come in a part with kingdom and I'm not here to say you know even if I had time I would be too scared to stand up here and talk about exactly what I think it look like when the king returns or what what extent the kingdom is now and what extent it will be um, but I do think that the kingdom is already not yet right So in some sense it's here Jesus said the kingdom's come near to you when he was there but we still await its complete inauguration right there's still promises that don't look like they've been completed uh, in a down earth way and the kingdom Jesus said, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? So as God's people, we await the king's second advent. And we have to ask ourselves, until then, uh, just, just as the Old Testament people awaited with longing and hope, even though we didn't always see it. We don't always see right now the world. It doesn't always look like things are happening. And it's been a long time since Jesus first came. And it kind of feels like maybe it's going to be a long time in front of us, but we we wait that advent and with longing and hope, and as 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 we do that, we have to ask ourselves, how are we supposed to be the kingdom to each other? The early church got this um, in a way that's a little comfortable for uncomfortable for us, and I'm not saying we have to do everything they did because there's all these cultural differences and stuff. But there is a sense where, as a church, we need to be the kingdom to each other. Uh, the early church provided for each other's physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. Um, just one example—I don't have time to read it, but I'll just mention it. If you look at First Timothy 5, uh, Paul mentions this list of widows, and it, he doesn't go into details on it because the people reading the letter already knew what he was talking about. But it probably means the church had an organized program to support these these wid- these women who had nobody else to support them. That was how they they ministered the kingdom to the widow through their church. The kingdom's for the kingdom of citizens, right? Um, what picture of the kingdom does Elkin's alliance manifest? Um, and where can we work to look more kingdom-y? Right? If I could make a, an awful word there. <laughs> That's just something I want us to think about. How can, how can we as a collective church be more kingdom-y? Um, the faithful remnant of Old Testament Israel waited with longing and hope for the Advent. Like them, we also wait with longing and hope for the second Advent of Messiah, who is Jesus. And we must practice this waiting with hope. This is my last Last little point here, and it's not something that's a command. It's just kind of like a suggestion or challenge I have. Psalm 5, uh, 1 through 5 says this. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. At daybreak, Lord, you hear my voice. At daybreak, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. So this is a great picture to me of of that Advent spirit, of of that pain, but we look to God and we pray to him and we look for him to work. That's what we need to practice. So you guys remember those Super Bowl commercials uh, with, I don't remember his name now, he's in Stranger Things, but we see all these Super Bowl commercials where it's like, oh, this is a car ad or this is a whatever, but then there's that one that says, you thought this was a car ad, but that's not a car ad. This is a Tide commercial, right? So here's where All right, you thought this was a Christmas sermon, but it's a New Year's Eve sermon. Um, so just, just my little suggestion here. Don't take it for what it's worth. Maybe you like to do this. Maybe you like to do a bunch of resolutions. I'm not, I'm not much of a resolution guy, but what if you scrapped one of those New Year's resolutions? Because we do, especially the people that make resolutions, they do a lot of work working on themselves, right? But we don't do as much Watching God to work. So if you scrap one of those New Year's resolutions and replace it with one request that you you decided, and it, I guess it's kind of a resolution, you're resolving to pray for this, for God to work this year, and you're going to watch for it. You're not just going to pray and forget about it, but you're going to keep reminding God, I'm praying to you for this. I'm watching with longing and with hope. Uh, that's, that's kind of a, a freebie there. Again, if you don't do that, you haven't. It's like, it's like those memes and the emails they used to send, like, if you don't pass this to your 18 friends, then the devil's going to... That, no, that's not what I mean. I'm just saying that's one way we can practice this longing and hope that Advent's all about. Um, uh, that, that's really all I got. May we as the king's people be better students of what God has spoken through his prophets and teachers throughout redemptive history. Um, I'll pray, and then we'll sing one more song and get out of here. Dear God... Thank you for what he meant to us spiritually and what he means for us and to the nation of Israel and to the whole world physically in the future. We wait for that, we look for that because every time we put our trust in, in human governments that aren't ordained by you, we get disappointed. And everybody does. So let us be watching for the Prince of Peace, the government on your shoulders. Let us live like, like that's a little bit here and we're still waiting for it to be fulfilled. And Jesus' name, amen.